Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Chit Heads. My guest today is Neil Dalal. Neil is Associate Professor of South Asian Philosophy and Religious Thought at the University of Alberta, where he teaches in both the Philosophy Department and Religious Studies program. He received his PhD in Asian Cultures and Languages from the University of Texas at Austin, where he specialized in Sanskrit and Indian philosophy, and an MA in East-West Psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Dalal's interests explore philosophy of mind, contemplative psychologies, and meditation practices found in classical South Asian yoga systems. He grounds this research in classical Sanskrit texts and commentaries, as well as their living traditions. Dalal's current research focuses on the intersections of contemplative practices, textual study, and embodiment in Advaita Vedanta. He is the co-director of Gurukulam, a sensory ethnographic study of a contemporary Advaita Vedanta community, co-editor of Asian Perspectives on Animal Ethics, and has published articles in venues such as the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Journal of Indian Philosophy, and Journal of Hindu Studies. Dalal is also a teacher within the traditional lineage of Shankaracharya's Advaita Vedanta. He spent several years living a monastic lifestyle in India while studying under the direct guidance of the renowned Advaita Vedantin Swami Dayananda Sarasvati, who gave him permission to teach in 2002. So, hello, Neil. How are you? Good. It's good to see you and meet you in sort of person. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to chat with you today, and um, I wanted to start off just uh, where I've uh, recently been preparing for this episode, which is watching the documentary <clears throat> Guru Kulam, which you created um, a couple of years ago, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, um, and this is a really <clears throat> beautiful documentary, which. Um, uh, you did while um, uh, staying at uh, this this Advaita Vedanta community in uh, Tamil Nadu, India, called Gurukulam. Um, is it correct to call it an ashram? Yeah, I mean, Gurukulam literally means a, a place. Well, literally means family of the teacher, but it means a place of traditional study. So it's it. You could call it an ashram, but Gurukulam has a little more of that sense of rigorous study involved I in it. I see. Well, what I th thought really stood out about um, the documentary, especially given your, uh, you know, other role as a scholar, is that it wasn't overly uh, discursive in the sense that you really focused on, on kind of letting the sensory experience speak for itself, which I thought was really interesting, given that you, you know, are a scholar and are perhaps prone to, you know, analyzing things. So, what was your inspiration behind um, creating a, a documentary that was very much not in the kind of analytical, scholarly vein that you might be accustomed to in academia? That's a good question. Um, so, when in, in in the academy, majority of work on Advaita Vedanta, there's a lot is very textual, philosophical, uh, and it's it's somewhat reductive of what the tradition actually is. And it's lent this sort of attitude or implicit understanding that Vedanta is you know, just about non-duality, which, which is obviously the main thrust of it, but it's been totally disembodied from the tradition, from the practices and whatnot. And so my experiences in the tradition were so different than what I what I consume and even what I produce as a scholar, that I wanted to show that. 
Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and we use a particular method called sensor ethnography, which is not discursive, as, as you said, because it's trying to get people to uh, be in that experience and see the experience of being there rather than like kind of stepping back and just being in some analytical discourse of what is this, trying to always interpret, uh, which pulls you out of what it would be to actually be there. Yeah. So yeah, that was the, yeah, it was the inspiration. Yeah, it was interesting that, you know, it definitely invoked a mood, but it wasn't a mode that a mood that was kind of overwritten by, you know, choices in music, which is typically, you know, there's there's a bit of manipulation, I think, generally in in a documentary. It's like the documentary wants you to feel a particular way. And so they use certain kind of devices, literary devices to kind of move you in that direction. Um, but this very much, you know, wasn't that. And, and I think, and I also read, of course, your article um, that you wrote about the about the the documentary. So I also knew a little bit about um, the intention behind it. But it was very powerful in that way. And I'm wondering if, um, well, one, I wanted to ask you: Is this the in your biography? You mentioned that you were you had an experience living in a traditional setting. Was this the 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 place where you did your more monastic lifestyle, where you lived the yeah, more monastic well, lifestyle? This is the lineage in which I studied, uh, and I spent a lot of time in that curriculum in uh, Tamil Nadu, mm-hmm. which is really what gave us access, because you know, I knew the people there, and, and, they, and they were willing to allow us to come in and film. Otherwise, there was no possibility of that. Uh, yeah, so there, and there's a couple other ashram gurukulams, one in Rishikesh, one in Nagpur, and one in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where I spent a lot of time as well. Oh, I see. So the the same sort of community or the same lineage is connected to these various ashrams yeah. across. The, okay, um, and the Arshavidya lineage. I see. So, um, what brought you to this path initially? I mean, I I know your descent obviously is is Indian, but in uh, was this something that was already a part of kind of you what you were immersed in as a child, or is this something that sort of came along gradually? Uh, not as a child. I mean, I grew up, so I was born and raised in Boston, or just outside of Boston in the suburbs. And um, so I grew up in a, in a Hindu family, immigrant family. And, you know, we were surrounded by, in, in, our, in, the, in the Indian community, in, the, in that western suburb, the, the suburbs of Boston, you know, we were, go to Hindu functions and whatnot. But uh, no, I wasn't very religious. Uh, it does turn out that the, my maternal family traces their lineage, at least in legend, uh, to the grand teacher of Shankara named Gaudapada, who wrote a really famous text um, called the Gaudapada Karakas. But that wasn't part of our, our like narrative. Um, it was, well, long story short, it was a long story, but when I was 18, my first year at university, I, I got, uh, I just got into spirituality, meditation, martial arts, and and just started exploring it and got con- completely consumed by it. Mm. And over some years exploring these different things, this is, you know, this is the early 90s. So there's no internet or anything. It's like catching whatever I can, exploring whatever I could. And then I came to non-duality and that really grabbed me because you know, mm-hmm. I, I knew I wanted to understand that, but I didn't know how to understand it. And I had taken courses in Asian religions, so I knew it was there and I... I started reading, you know, Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita, also Buddhist texts and other texts that were talking about non-duality. But I knew I couldn't understand it, and eventually I found a teacher 
uh, in California named Kara Whitfield at, at CIS where I did my MA. And through her, I met Swami Dayananda Saraswati. And eventually when I pretty early on, I planned to go an academic route through that after that to continue studying. Mm. So yeah, that's the, the long, very long story and a pretty short version. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm curious a little bit about sort of the gap, if you experienced a gap between kind of the the Hindu cultural backdrop that you grew up in, and then and the and the study of the esoteric. I mean, did that seem like something that you would have um, been led to the knowledge of prior, or is it something that only you only kind of discovered as a result of your own study? My- so my parents, and I would say the, the whole community we were involved in at that time, they, they had no idea what Vedanta was. Right. I mean, everyone knows Bhagavad Gita. They know, the, they know what the Upanishads are. I think the beautiful thing in, in Hindu culture is that the possibility of these practices are there. Right. So everyone knows it's part of the cultural archetypes. I grew up actually really loving Indian mythology. And so uh, it was sort of like, I also liked fantasy and sci-fi. So that was sort of like a, the Indian version of that for me. And so I had these archetypes of the yogis and the sages and the forest ascetics. And, and you know, I had these questions. Why would these kings give up their kingdom to go into the forest and meditate? You know, so that was there in some latent mm. way. Not very conscious, I, I think. But when I came into Vedanta, that kind of, I realized how much I had actually been exposed to. But um, majority of the people we grew up with were, I'd say my mother was quite traditional. My maternal family, uh, you know, my, uh, they're, they're what we call karmatas. They, they're ritualists. Yeah. And so every day she would do her puja twice a day. And so I grew up with that. But my father wasn't at that time very interested. And so it was sort of, you know, we we're growing up as American, Indian Americans and and religion didn't play a big part in our in our lives, mm. so I don't know if that quite answers the question. No, I no, it does. And I guess um, the the question of the of kind of the function of ritual is a good segue into um, uh, a little bit more that I wanted to talk about with with regards to the documentary, because um, as as some people know, and we talked about this before we started the interview, um, as many many people associate Vedanta with um you know the liberation particular to knowledge and and a certain kind of knowledge right and so the the ritual or the action um the actions that are particular to um different kind of uh religious dispositions tend to be um uh, uh considered less than important or in fact not actually um uh, conducive to you know realizing enlightenment in some way, uh, but in the in the documentary it was very apparent that the kind of study of the text, uh, what you describe as you know after Gavin Flood is contextualization and this uh, experience of studying the text as a way of sort of being written by the text, um, uh, and that seems to be central. But then it's also alongside all of this. Um, uh, ritual, uh, you know, in terms of chanting and puja, and there even, you know, to uh, there's even the 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 presence of kind of more um, anthropomorphic images, particularly those of Shiva. Um, so, so I'm interested, sort of, 
about the intersection of all of these things, what is the role of ritual um, in a community of Vedantins that are, uh, you know, at least um, on paper, uh, consider, you know, the, the road to enlightenment to be one purely of knowledge? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> the, so it's, it's, it's a great question because it's true that if you, in terms of the philosophy of Advaita, there is a, uh, a, I wouldn't say a conflict, but a distinction between what can action do for you, any action, and, and versus knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that action includes ritual action, devotional actions, as well as meditation. Right, so, so they consider meditation or complex envisioning visualization practices or mindfulness or whatever. These are all mental actions. And so the, 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 basic, uh, I, the basic argument is that actions produce results. Uh, yourself, non-dual consciousness, is not a result. It's not something that can be in causation. It can't be produced. It can't be reached. It can't be gained. It can't be purified. And they go into a whole, you know, uh, really technical discussion of, of the, the, the why karma action is not a means of knowledge and doesn't lead to knowledge in the way that perception does or other means of knowledge. Um, and so this has been taken in, I think, in academically to some degree and also in the, the popular movements of Neo-Advaita and also the popular interpretations of what Advaita is, that therefore all actions, all rituals, all devotional practices are, you know, completely useless. Mm -hmm. And that's not the point. And the, the point is that it's not going to lead to full knowledge, full moksha, full liberation. But the, the, the tradition is very clear that we use those practices to help us become qualified students for knowledge. Mm. Right, so, so if you try and go into an Advaita process for, or study and you don't incorporate any of those practices, the tradition will say, well, you're going to fail very quickly. Also, I should also include ethical practices, and so developing compassion and kindness and living a dharmic life. So this is, this is part of the reduction of Advaita as this is cold, you know, non-dual uh, tradition, and, and then... And, and, and in some contemporary traditions, or what some people call neo-Advaitins, uh, I don't know if it's fair to generalize with these groups because they're very diverse, but uh, there's sometimes an idea that there's nowhere to go, there's no path, there's no sadhana, there's no practice. You already are what you seek to be. You already are known to a consciousness, so don't do anything because then you're basically undermining yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's not false. But if you try and jump to that understanding, you're just going to be treading water right. from a traditional perspective. The, the tradition is not saying talking is, is a problem. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the traditional methodology, actually, this comes out of the, out of the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, there's a triple process of study for knowledge. And one is listening. One is logical reflection. And by the way, that's also lost in a lot of contemporary communities spiritual communities in general, that, that we can really intellectually, rigorously question and critique and try to understand that way. So listening, reflection, and then third is a, a, a contemplative contemplative understanding of what, what you have understood through listening and reflection. 
So this first one listening, what's called Shravana, is means that the teacher is talking. So talking is central and, and the student listening, except here's a distinction that I would make, at least the tradition makes, is that the, there are very particular ways of how to unfold the vision of non-duality according to particular me methods. And if you don't have those methods, uh, and there's a really amazing, beautiful, and technical discussions of what these methods are and how they function, uh, if you don't have those methods, then, then it's just verbal intellectualizing, and it's just conceptual understanding. Uh, obviously, non-duality is not subject to words. Mm -hmm. And there's some really famous verses, like in the Taittiriya Upanishad, there's one where it says, uh, words turn back. Uh, they, they, can't, they can't approach that, that Brahman, that non-dual. But if you can use paradox, you can use um, what's, certain kinds of implication, uh, getting to connotative senses of terms, and there's all these really uh, sophisticated methods for how to use the words to allow someone to understand. So that's what we call pramana, which means a means of knowledge. So that the words become a means of knowledge, testimony. And it can function, if it's employed properly by a teacher who understands how to do that, it becomes like a mirror of words mm. to reflect back at yourself. So rather than refracting elsewhere, which words usually do, you're able to turn it back and see yourself through the words. Mm. Now the problem is, or the difficulty is, for the student to engage that process of listening properly, they require a lot of inner work. So just to give you an example, if I say, you know, if you're in a dark room and I say, okay, I want you to see this object, use your, your eyesight, uh, you have to do several actions. You have to turn the lights on, maybe you have to put your glasses on, you have to turn your head to, to, so that you're facing the object. And once all the conditions are met for the means of knowledge to work in your visual perception, that object is immediately known. Right? And you can't unknow it. You can't be looking at the object and going, that's not a cup or whatever. You know, if I hold a cup up and say, you know, what is this? And you can't say it's an elephant like if, all the, if everything is aligned properly, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do uh, in, in, in Advaita is line everything up. But to line everything up for the listening, the words to work, that takes a lot of practices. And um, there's many of them. Right, so from meditation to devotional practices to, you know, um, Dayananda Saraswati, my, my teacher, he was really saw the importance of recognizing, we this term Ishvara, which for your listeners, if, I hate translating this as God because it's, that brings up a whole bunch of problematic assumptions in, in English. But Ishvara, the, the, the true nature of, of the, the divine Shiva, Vishnu, whatever we want to call it. Um, as everything in the universe, including my mind, including my body. Uh, and it's sort of like the order that moves through all things. And so recognizing that and appreciating that, this is much the topic in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, becomes a process of psychological growth through, if you want to call that devotional practices or karma yoga. And so that is one of the most central ways of, of aligning the pramana aligning the means of knowledge so that the recognition can take place. Mm. So it's, it's subsidiary practices, which doesn't get you to the goal, but allows you to see it. Yeah. 
So um, the presence of Shiva as Dakshinamurti in in um, in Gurukulam is that uh, is that essentially a manifestation of Ishvara in according to what you're saying? Yeah, definitely. And and I, just to add along with that, so you know, every, everyone tr practicing Advaitins, uh, at least within this lineage that I'm most familiar with, they all come with different degrees of knowledge and different experiences. And, and uh, of course, you have also people of Hindu descent and uh, people of Westerners, right? So yeah. now you're coming from very different places. And so in the beginning, maybe you're relating to the to the deity as an anthropomorphic figure, as a murti in the temple. And as you grow, you come to understand that that um, you are a part of Ishura, as a part to the whole, like a wave to the ocean. And then your relationship changes very much. And we're doing all these practices and, and an understanding of how, so just, just for example, um, the elements are Ishura, right? So you're relating externally, everything becomes Ishura. And then internally, you have presiding deities of every function. Like your speech is the goddess Vak. You know your your uh, you, you know your eyes, your mind, your all all your physiological functions. These are all deified, um, and so you're these are all ways of seeing yourself as the whole, as Ishvara, and this becomes a way of developing equanimity. So even the temple, just uh, just to, sorry to go on one other little tangential line here. Even the temple functions in this really important way, where when you go to a Hindu temple, uh, at any Hindu would, would, would jive with this experience. Uh, you you make food offerings, right? Sometimes you do it yourself, like at home. Sometimes the pujari, the, the priest, will do it in the temple, and then uh, they do the, the 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 there's darshan of the, the deity sees the food, blesses the food. The food becomes sacred, and at the end of the ritual, they give it back to you, and then you consume the food, right? And it's called prasad, prasada. Now, personally, when I go to a temple. Well, you never know what you're gonna get, and sometimes you like it. Like I just, for me, I love the, the tiny bananas in India and in South India, especially like these, just the sweetest bananas ever. They're so sweet. And sometimes you get something really, you really don't like. So, for example, I cannot stand the essence of rose water when it's dumped on food. This is a common and it's, it's very auspicious, right? This rose essence. And but here's the thing: is when you get that prasad, you can't. You can't say no. You can't say, well, I don't like that. This is one of these things I learned as a kid. My mom would force me, like, I don't want, I never really actually liked Indian sweets. Uh, and But she would force me, like, no, this is from the temple. You have to eat this. And they're like, fine, I'll take one little, little piece. You know, she'd be like, okay. But that, that there's a kind of equanimity in terms of your preferences there. Mm -hmm. And so the devotional practices, especially in the, the Bhagavad Gita, the way we look at the Gita, one part of it is is that whatever actions you do are offerings to Ishvara, and whatever results come back, which are outside of your control, are like the prasad, the prasada from the temple, and you accept it. You don't have to like it, but you accept it. And so these are the, like so that develops equanimity. It's called samatvam, and this is a central um, re prerequisite for understanding. So um, one thing that you keep mentioning that I, I just wanted to sort of tangentially bring up is the concept of karma yoga. And a, a lot of people in sort of the modern day yoga community, I think, associate that term with like 
doing good works or, um, you know, volunteering. Uh, yeah, seva, basically. And, and so as you're describing it, karma yoga really is uh, a description of that approach to practice, which is about ritual action, devotional practices, um, and the like. So do you think there's anything problematic about this sort of appropriation of karma yoga as being something other than um, the rituals themselves, particularly in a, in, in a Western context where that's the first thing that gets thrown out. They're like, look at this empty ritual. Like, that doesn't mean anything to me. I don't understand the significance of it. It's sort of, you know, it's just sort of like, it's, it reminds me of something I experienced in my, you know, Christian upbringing where I had to do this empty ritual thing. Um, so, you know, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Um, the difference between like the way the West has appropriated the concept of karma yoga and as it's essentially traditionally um, defined. Well, first, I, I can really empathize with the, the questions around ritual because I felt the same way. You know, growing up, I didn't, my, I would, I, I probably didn't ask my mother that much, but the, the times I would ask her, she'd be like, I, you know, we just do it this way. And, and I didn't understand what was being chanted and I didn't understand why, like why all the materials and all the stuff, it was beautiful. And, you know, maybe a fun family event, but I, I didn't get it. And it took a long time in the tradition for me to develop the appreciation of the rituals. And what's really amazing when you start looking into the meanings of the rituals and you understand the meanings of the chants, there's so much wisdom in there. It's all, yeah. it's, it's, it's right there, but it's kind of like you're, it's hiding. And also in the mythology, the sacred narratives and, and all this stuff. And, and once you start understanding on, for me, at least it was understanding on sort of the meta level, the higher level of the, in the philosophical level. And then I started seeing it all manifesting on this very material level or verbal chanting level that gave me the appreciation for it. So that's just, just one thing. But when it comes to the karma yoga question, um, I think it's just a terminological issue. Mm. It's, it's really, we should call that this, this doing work for the sake of work or volunteering. We should just call it seva. Yeah. So when we say it's karma yoga, and then we assume if, if people are calling it karma yoga and it's actually volunteer work, and, and they think what they're doing is what the Bhagavad Gita is telling you to do, now you have a misinterpretation. And I think on a broader level, what a critique I would have or a, request, or a recommendation I would have is that we live in a world of a, a spiritual but not religious world within the modern yoga kind of communities where where we're very non-textual oriented. And we also tend to be, these communities tend to be sometimes anti-intellectual yeah. and anti-critical. And, uh, and maybe the only text people would delve into is the, the Yoga Sutras and sometimes the Bhagavad Gita. But then the problem is that uh, they, they use Western interpretations. So this this is a long. I don't I don't want to go this too. We can we can delve no, into this it more. This is juicy but. stuff. Keep going. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I teach um, uh, I teach courses on, on on classical yoga yoga sutras, potentially yoga darshana, and also courses on modern yoga. And sometimes I'll do these exercises with my students. Where I'll give them a, a assignment where they need to take a the classical text with its commentaries, and then a contemporary text that's interpreting the yoga sutras. And do a comparison, and sometimes they cannot find they can't they cannot recognize the classical text in the modern one at all. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the things I find, I find this all the time on like yoga groups on Facebook or, 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 or some yoga teachers I meet where there's this idea that you should, you should just intuit the meaning of these texts. <laughs> that, okay, I'll, 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 I'll take this line. Sometimes it'll be in Sanskrit even, not even in the translation. I go, just, just listen in your heart. What does it mean? <laughs> this, this is not part of the tradition. This is actually, and there's a lot of interesting work going on tracing the, the American metaphysical background of how modern yoga interprets yoga. Yeah. Or modern spirituality in general, spiritual but not religious kind of communities. And this is, this, these kinds of practices go back to Theosophical Society and other groups, and it's not part of the tradition. So, and it's led to a lot of misinterpretation. It's led to a lot of people sort of just laying down the lines of the interpretation that they want the text to have, right? So there's selective bias and, and a lot of other stuff. And so I think this is, um, it's actually destructive and it's part of the larger problem of cultural appropriation. Like when you are, two things, one, when you're misinterpreting a text according to the tradition. And then secondly, if you're a teacher or someone doing social media or branding yourself using this stuff, or you're putting it out there authoritatively, now you have a double issue, right? If someone's just doing it on their own, you know, that's one thing. But when teachers are doing it, I think there's a, there's a, a deeper issue. So, so yeah, I think karma yoga um, is not totally wrong because in the Bhagavad Gita there is this idea that you 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 do your duty for the sake of the duty and you accept the results. But if you strip Ishvara out of karma yoga in the Bhagavad Gita, it's not karma yoga anymore. And this, by the way, is just another little, okay, another little side note here. People always look at the Bhagavad Gita and they say, there's three yogas. There's karma yoga, there's yoga of action, there's jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge, and there's bhakti yoga, the knowledge of devotion, or the, the yoga of devotion, sorry. There is no third yoga in the Bhagavad Gita. You'll find nowhere in the text where it says there's three yogas. You'll see multiple times there's two yogas. All right, so in the beginning of the third chapter, Arjuna is saying, Krishna, you're telling me there's these two yogas. Which one is better? All right, which of the two? Um, so there's no stripping of bhakti yoga from karma yoga. Karma yoga is bhakti yoga. And anyone who's saying there's three yogas is, is, in my opinion, misinterpreting the text. Or, or there, I mean, there are later traditions in India that do make a claim for three yogas. I don't want to you know, dismiss them. But from a textual perspective, there's only two yogas. Love so, yeah, Ishra Karma Yoga are, are, are tied together. You can't separate them. So I want to go back. I want to go back a little bit because I, I love this uh, line of thought and uh, discussion. Um, uh, and, and you know, just to kind of comment on one of the things you were saying about the the metaphysical assumptions backdrop of of kind of modern spiritual interpretations and and there's you know there's a lot of sort of complex issues at play like you know especially with regards to um, the now backlash against sort of traditional guru shishya relationships because of all of the abuses that have taken place and then of course you also have sort of liberal individualism playing as an ideology sort of like oh everything is found is within and like you know the the abundance of of life is all within me and all i need to do is just you know tap into my inner guru 
Um, but of course, anybody you know that studied anything in life and hope it hope to um, perfect knowledge in any particular way knows that they need a teacher. <laughs> um, but that seems to be forgotten. So there's 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 you know all of these things sort of playing into this um, this resistance to. Um, and then I pr really appreciated what you were pointing out about the anti-intellectualism because this is something that I really experience a lot too. Is these people, th this false dichotomy between feeling and knowledge, and the and the sense that like yoga is just about like feeling, and and the knowledge is superfluous or in some in some sense sort of like an abstraction from my experience rather than knowledge actually conditioning the possibility of experience. Um, so there's all these these kinds of you know fuzzy. Um, presuppositions that are sort of at play in all of this, and and so I'm just wondering, you know, what you, what your position is on all of that, just to go deeper into this um, juicy topic, and what you think the solution, uh, you know, part of the solution might be. Yeah, it's really. I mean, it's so. It seems like just in the past few years, it's the whole discourse has 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 erupted in in a way that it hadn't before. Well, one quick thing I would say, and I'll, and I'll tie this back into the Guru discussion, is that in in Vedanta, uh, from a, in traditional Vedanta, uh, there is a really deep critique of what we would call experience hunting. Mm. Uh, so understanding non-duality is not an experience of non-duality. I, I would qualify as I would say there is there is a phenomenology of the knower of non-duality. There's something different about when you know versus when you don't know, or to whatever degree of clarity you have. But non-duality is not something you try and experience. So this is a major misconception uh, in, in contemporary spirituality, contemporary non-dualism, and also in many of the yoga communities, especially with, who talk about oneness a lot, where... Uh, and it's, it's also a critique of the Yoga Sutras as well, that if experience is transitory, Right, so, so first of all, what does it mean to experience non-duality? It's not an object. So then you go, okay, well, there's non-dual experience where subject-object divisions, uh, you know, dissolve or fall apart. But uh, Shankara, the, the the great com the, our earliest commentator on the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita and some other and the Brahma Sutras, uh, and the most well-known or the most influential Advaitin, he actually critiques this in several places and says, well, what knowledge are you going to gain? Right, so for example. If, um, if we have a room with 20 people, or however many people, and somehow uh, they all have an, a, a samadhi, non-dual experience, and then after that experience, you give them all a piece of paper and say, okay, now write down what does this mean about yourself? Who are you in reality? What's, the re what's your relationship to the world? What's your relationship to Ishvara? And you might get 20 different answers, which might contradict each other. Right? So now, what kind of knowledge comes out of that? And what happens instead is that people are, I think, this is not just here in the West, I mean, in India too, is that we've become so bent on a, on a conception of spirituality, which is so experientially heavy, that we're craving these kind of um, ecstatic experiences or sattvic experiences or, or deep states of quietude or joy or whatever it is. And um, then we get addicted to that. We're always searching for it. And I think... So that's a, that's a long critique, which we can come back to, but I want to tie this into the, the guru equation because I think part of the problem in the guru mentality of the people who are seeking gurus mm -hmm. is that um, 
they they want the guru to give them an enlightenment experience. Uh, so going to Amachi, the the you know the well the, the famous hugging swamp, uh, saint, right? People go and they get her hug and they have this encounter with this you know, assuming uh, let's charitably assume that she's actually this manifesting the, the goddess within her. And that they have that encounter and they have these transformative experiences and then they, they want to keep going back to her, right? Or people want to go to like find a, the enlightened guru and have the guru enlighten them, you know, like, and, they, and they're looking for this experience. And I think this is part of what has made people approach gurus in a way that allows the abusive behavior to happen in the first place. Right? It's a misunderstanding of what does a guru actually do. And so that's one thing. And now to tie that back into... Um, the discourse, the anti-Guru discourse, what you're getting at, I think is is so, it's obviously not black and white. There are real issues, right? The, the, the several Gurus, I mean, it seems like every week we have a new Guru who's being called out for some kind of sexual abuse, for mm -hmm. some power abuse or some, something. And, and I think rightfully so, that they, they need to be called out, they need to be taken off their, their pedestal, but really, we shouldn't be putting teachers on that kind of pedestal in the first place. So there's a couple of things here. Sorry, I have like too many, too many ideas. I'm no, trying to pick on. which one to go with. But one thing I find that, that has been concerning with, to me about this is that, so I, I certainly agree that there's a, a problem, and I think it goes both ways between the gurus and the students, giving the kind of power to the guru and the institutions these sort of um, inside members, inner circles, protecting gurus, silencing, all, all that stuff, right? There, there's so much of that. On the other hand, the discourse, I think, is also inflected by cultural appropriation and racism in that the, the um, there has become like an, I, I, I sense that there's a sort of anti-India sentiment that ties into this, and it's very convenient to put all Indian teachers under the bus. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have to have some vague, some discrimination between uh, recognizing the need for teachers, Indian or non-Indian, men or women, whatever, uh, whatever, what, you know, whatever sexual, sexual preferences, that's like the non-issue there. But, but the, the, the role of a teacher is important. And we don't go into, I can't think of any practice I would go into that's difficult. Whereas I'm going to figure it out on my, on my own. And we live in a kind of weird world today because, you know, you can say, I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn, like, I'm going to learn how to break dance off YouTube, right? And so you can learn, you can listen to a lot of discourses online and stuff like that. But the need for a teacher is, like, if you were going to learn music on your own, like, I'm not, I'm not going to go and learn piano and think I'm going to teach myself. Maybe I could do it. Um... I think actually spirituality, or in my case, Vedanta, is more complicated because you're dealing with psychological stuff. You're dealing with practices of meditation. You really need that that one-to-one um, -one relationship with a teacher where you can question, ask, resolve doubts, ask for guidance. What I think is happening is that the very term guru has been appropriated and put with a negative connotation. And that's what I think is really disturbing to me is that mm -hmm. Now we throw the guru out, and we're throwing the whole possibility of learning out then. 
And then we try and learn on our own. And I did that myself. I had several teachers actually prior to coming to Atlanta. And but but I was trying to to do like a, a collage or some kind of syncretic piece piecemeal creating my own spirituality, which I think is what is central to the SBNR, the spiritual but not religious community, is that you have your own agency. That's beautiful in, in many ways. And then you to agency to do whatever you want, however you want. But we're, we but people get lost. Right, because they don't know what they're doing, they don't know where they're going, they don't know the pitfalls they're falling into. They they have no, they don't know a destination, and they have no compass at the same time. And so, and then you're just putting all these pieces together, and you don't know, especially if you kind of let the dominoes fall of, of what are the presuppositions of these different positions and these different traditions they might be. So you know, you go, oh, I'm going to go do ayahuasca in Peru with some shaman. Um, or some Westerner who's a shaman, and then I'm going to go, you know, do, do some mindfulness and or vipassana retreat, and then I'm going to go do some yoga asana practice, and then I'm going to do a little, you know, uh, classical non-dual tantra, and uh, but I don't maybe I'll add a little Dzogchen non-dualism and a little Advaita Vedanta non-dualism, and I'll, I'll just going to put it all together, and and I'm going to intuit my own ideas. I'm going to go to a psychotherapist, and uh, there's a lot of growth that takes place through all that. But but people don't understand what the conflicts are and you know how it's all working together and so yeah I, th I think the need for a teacher is central. I also uh, empathize with the skepticism and I in myself am very skeptical of people who claim to be gurus and especially the big name gurus right because because I find that Western and Indian ones like there there's a great deal of performance. Involved and there's a great. They may be very charismatic. They may be very intelligent. Uh, but I often am skeptical of you know why are they pushing so hard to become gurus? You know what what are their lineages and and what like what authority do they have? What do they really know? Uh, so I think there has to be a balance. Basically, you know we need the skepticism. We need to be protective of the abuse. We need to call out abuse when it happens. We need to step away when it happens. Uh, we need to figure out, you know, the real, I think a real poignant issue is when you have learned a lot from a guru and then you realize the abuse have done, what do you, how do you hold that knowledge? Right? These are things we need to work with, but, but I don't think we can just walk off on our own and think we're going to find a way. Not, not to moksha. If you, if you're pursuing real freedom uh, and you're not just pursuing like performance enhancement, which is a lot of what's or wellness, which is a lot of what spirituality has become. Then, then the guru is essential. Yeah. So I wanted to ask kind of a follow up question to that, which is, do you do you think that it's a you know two sides of the same racist coin that we've moved so dramatically from a period of history of a hyper exoticization of Indian teachers? And now, and it's sort of like gone completely in the opposite direction. And now it's sort of, uh, it, you know, is is it the same kind of racism functioning that you know turns all Indian teachers into like gods from some kind of, you know, sacred plane, and then sort of turns them into you know objects of of ridicule and disdain. Like because if if, yeah, they, had, if they hadn't been so high on the pedestal, they wouldn't have had so far to fall. <laughs> Yeah, I do. 
Well, for, first of all, I, I, would, I, I think just to quickly point out that I generally don't think, I think of this as institutional issues, not as individual issues. Right. So a lot of people, right. like, uh, especially people who are not people of color, uh, so white people, uh, <laughs> there's a tendency to think of, of racism as like malevolent action, malevolent intention. Yeah. And, and I think yeah. that's not, to take the yoga community, I, I, I love the yoga community. I have so many friends in the yoga in, in the what I say is the intersection of the spiritual but not religious and the yoga community. Um, in so many ways, I love the culture. I have deep admiration and empathy, and and um, and, and it's and it's it's also a very cool culture. You know, it's it's a it's a super cool, cool like they're the cool kids. You know, in many ways, and um, so I have a lot of appreciation, and I, I don't think, and, and, and especially in the sense that almost every yoga person I know genuinely honestly are coming from a good place with a good heart trying to do their best and grow their most and help and be helpful to other people and there's, yeah. so there's a real kindness community so just to be clear in that level I, but i think institutionally um of course there are exceptions to that but institutionally um it's a bigger issue with the, the way yoga has gone and the way in the, in the underlying premises of spiritual but not religious religiosity because i do think it's a religious movement even though it's quote unquote not religious yeah and so yeah i think what you're saying is interesting interesting way of looking at it because there's this earlier exotification kind of orientalism of indian indian wisdom eastern wisdom in general and now we live in this world where we're flipped maybe to the exact opposite side and start dismissing it all and saying we don't need any of that anymore and there's nothing there and so yeah we don't need the we don't need the teachers we don't need the texts we don't need the the quote-unquote dogma we don't need the quote-unquote institutions um so but but here's the thing is that when in um a lot of the spirituality which does that extracts so now there's, there's a, 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 a process of extraction and, and whitewashing it and, and covering up its, its kind of cultural origins and trying to extract it so there's no culture at all yet implicit there's still this idea that we're that then they are doing an ancient practice right so there's still the cachet value of the ancientness of the Indianness or the Easternness even the the very concept of east versus west is problematic, but um, yeah. and so that, so you can say like I'm doing I'm doing an asana posture practice, which on one hand is just posture, and it can be taught as fitness, it can be taught as more like a physical therapy kind of practice, but it's still this, you know, four thousand. It's not four thousand years old, but you know you'll see this on on yoga websites. We're doing something that's four thousand years old or ancient, ancient, ancient. But we're going to teach it in this way, which is totally non-Indian. Uh, so even the yoga students, which will say like on their door, no Sanskrit words in this studio as a selling point. There's still some idea that they're doing something ancient, and so they're on one hand they're borrowing, they're trying to tap into that that value, and then extracting it in a way that fits a market. And it's to me, it's all about economics and, and the so the capitalists issues underlying the marketing and branding of yoga is closely tied to um, issues of appropriation mm -hmm. 
an exoticism or anti-exoticism or guru versus non-guru. And, uh, uh, yeah, people don't really see that. So, so I'm wondering um, what <laughs> the the mode of intellectual is, uh, intellectual approach to these teachings, how this plays into uh, the problems around cultural appropriation. And when I ask that, I'm thinking specifically of what, what I'm seeing um, just generally, and it might just me just be my just my sensitivity to it, but I think it is taking place is this turn from perhaps having like let's say in a yoga teacher training, you know, setting aside whether or not you know a tuner yoga teacher training if it has um, anything to do with the authentic path of yoga. But um, let's just talk about that for a second. There, there seems to be, or there was at least you know when I initially did that, and and uh, there was this sort of desire to um, teach the teachings from within, you know, uh, the kind of devotional standpoint from which they derive, or there was an, a, a, there was a sense of teaching the philosophy um, from the perspective of, of what it's essentially meant to, to cultivate. And it seems like there's kind of a shift toward now studying the philosophy as, from a kind of externalized point of view, or it's like, you know, so rather than having yo devotional yoga leaders teaching yoga philosophy, you have yoga scholars, yoga studies scholars teaching like about yoga yoga philosophy as if it's sort of an archaeological find you know like it's it's sort of separate from us and like this and this is a more sort of this is being presented as a more responsible way to study these things mm -hmm. because it because it doesn't actually take a stand on the soteriological you know um uh views of of the tradition itself um but is that in in of itself like a misappropriation of yoga to to imply that the study of yoga philosophy itself is is somehow um, is just an abstracted scholarly activity? Isn't that appropriating it according to the terms of a kind of Western um, objective objectivist academic orientation? Ooh, it's getting me in some hot water here. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting because there, there's um, there are a lot of critiques of academia as as being cultural appropriation. Well, I, I say a, maybe academia in general, because academia in general is a white institution, and if if you come. I'm not going to argue for this, but it, but a lot of people who do like let's say critical race studies or people in anti-race activism would come to the come to the table with the premise that any institution that holds power and that is mostly white holds racist ideologies in it. So that's that that can be debated, but if if that's the case, of course academia is no different than government or mega corporations or, or whatever. Uh, and so there's a deeper, there's one deeper, very deep question of in what ways is racism and appropriation or, or, or colonialism functioning within the academy as a whole? And then to close it, uh, to narrow it down, how is that functioning in South Asian religions or within the, within the, the institution of scholars who study South Asian religions or specifically in the yoga studies, which is a really small community. It's really just, I don't know, 20 30 people really doing that modern yoga or, or 
modern yoga and um, really medieval yoga. Mm-hmm. So that's a hard question. I don't, I don't really know the answer to that. And I think there, there's no interest in really pursuing that question within the field. Which I think is actually uh, there's there is stuff that's about to come out or is, is coming out in the next few years of some scholars working on the issues of appropriation and um, but there's a very little reflexive awareness within the 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 field of South Asian religions on how are we being affected by how how are how is the field uh, manifesting these issues. Un- unintentionally, maybe unknowingly, but still doing that, which is very different because j- just to give an example, in, in anthropology, an ethnographer has to be very clear about their bis- positionality, right? Who are they? How are they? What are they coming to encounter in another culture? And and they often in their work state that, right? This I'm I'm so and so. This is my. These are the kind of implicit biases I might have given, given my positionality. So this whole reflexivity uh, kind of issue, we, we don't do that in religious studies generally, in South Asian religions. No, no one writes a book looking at like, you know, a, a critique of medieval Hatha Yoga or like Shaivism out of Kashmir or whatever and state their positionality and why they might be taking certain positions they do. And so this is, it, it's just not done generally. Mm. So I do think there's a, a bigger issue with that. But coming to your more specifically with your question, um, in terms of yoga teacher trainings, I don't I don't know because yoga is so broad and so big and such a massive you know I don't know what in in, in the United States alone what we have like thirty five million yoga practitioners or something right, mm-hmm. and then the teacher trainings are one of the biggest cash cows for studios, and you know we have this proliferation of studios. It, the studios are increasing, especially the, the the small independent studios are under increasing pressure. Right, they're barely surviving. It's now it's becoming corporate studios, and 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 again, it's come down to market and branding. And the majority, as yoga grows and grows, I think the uh, is a, is probably a minority of yoga. I don't know the numbers, but I'm guessing a minority of yoga practitioners who are really interested in going deep into a more traditional yoga practice, going beyond asana itself, yeah. right? How many yoga studios do do anything more than asana? Maybe a little pranayama, a little breath work, maybe a little meditation. That meditation is also being popularized by the contemporary meditation movement, right? Which is also secularized meditation generally. Yeah. Um, and that's it. You know, it's like 95% asana, maybe 4%, 3 or 4% pranayama and like one or two percent meditation and there's nothing else and then the teacher trainings to me are bizarre you know that it's not surprising bizarre that you have 200 hour teacher trainings and then like now you're a yoga teacher yeah it's like the lack of standards is absolutely horrendous to me yeah if i give um like an analog because my bodily like Practices have been more on the lines of martial arts. And just to give one example, um, now with the, the rise of mixed martial arts and um, like Brazilian jiu-jitsu is this huge thing. And there's an interesting issue coming up with Brazilian jiu-jitsu where traditionally to get a black belt in jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it would take like years and years and years, like 10, 
15 years, 20, maybe in 20 years, and you have to prove yourself. You have to be able, like, you know, if a brown belt is beating you, you can't get a black belt, right? You have to be, you have to prove yourself. And, and um, the 200-hour teacher training is so flimsy. I don't really get it. That's one thing. And so, so, but it fits because now they have to make money. 200-hour teacher training, whatever people are charging, like you can, you can pump them out. You know, you can do two a year or more. Uh, and now you have this super saturation of yoga teachers who can't get jobs, and so it's all playing to this market. And the market doesn't pull for people to go deep into yoga as a practitioner. So. Um, I don't know though about these, the, the, yeah, the, this idea of what you're saying of studying yoga philosophy as a system that's, it's very academic, right? In fact, this is a, a distinction I would make between traditional study and academic studies that, and so I actually have to play these two roles, right? So in academia, when I teach Vedanta or yoga philosophy or, or any Buddhist philosophy, um, I do often take the role that let's 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 look at this as though it's true, yeah. and argue around that. Like, and I will move. Like, okay, we're going to do Mahayana Buddhism. Let's argue it like it's like this is a, 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 a true and critique it and, and argue for and against it. And we'll move to yoga philosophy and like, let's look at yoga philosophy in the same way and charitably. But I'm not teaching it in a way that they need to reflect on themselves through the teaching. It's always out here. It's always like this diorama, right? They're, they're tinkering mm -hmm. with it and comparing. Uh, and that's why there is no growth necessary yeah. in that. And, and that's the sort of social contract that I have with academic students, right? Implicit. Like they're not coming in to look at themselves. Uh, sometimes I, a little bit only because like almost like half of my students are dealing with some level of mental illness now. And so I, I'm it feels so empty to not bring, like, you know, at least let them dabble with a little meditation. In, in my philosophy classes, actually, now, I don't do this as much in religious studies courses because um, religious studies is more uh, wary of this, getting into theological practice, whereas philosophy students are more open to these kind of thought experiments. That's another whole story. But, but um, so what, what's going on then in the teacher training is that doing the same, as you're saying, they're doing the same thing. And I don't know, it's because that's, is that the kind of social contract they have now? in those teacher trainings that they're just, and I don't know, this ties into like yoga alliance requirements and all that sort of stuff of like, you just need so many hours of yoga philosophy and how, and yoga history. And, and, uh, so I think maybe it's problematic at the same time. I think what the, the knowledge that's coming out is really amazing. And I think it's empowering to know the history. Kind of come back to the appropriation though. I, I do find that the the um, the academic knowledge that are coming out of the yoga studies community, um, and and there's you know really there's like let's say five to ten people that people are looking at their work, like Mark Singleton and Jim Mallins and wonderful scholars, but but their their work is then being weaponized in ways to further pull pull away from the tradition. Yeah. And so, you know, the idea that, that which is not really good interpretation probably of Singleton, but the but the idea that yoga is just as modern, asana practice is just a total modern invention, therefore you don't need to know anything about the history. 
And so people focus on those ideas and it's really to, it's a kind of selective bias to fit their, their um, ambition to extract and isolate yoga away from India. And also gives them permission to, to in the agency to change it and interpret it and do whatever they want with it. Yeah. And so we have this really tangled web of how now with, more open source information where the, the academic knowledge is being employed in ways that, and, and the academics now have a responsibility that they didn't have before because they're not in the ivory tower, or the yoga studies crew at least, are not in the ivory tower. They're, they're, their work is being consumed at a, at a, immediately now. There's this great interest, you know, in, in pulling that knowledge in and, and sharing it. So, yeah, I don't have any, I don't have a, a yes or no black or white answer. No, but I, I, I think, I think, I think it's interesting. Listen, what you, I think what's important. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say what's important is that for the yoga community and the academic community to try and understand how the power dynamics are working and how the knowledge is being used and 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 moved and and um, that itself is an empowering, you know. And I think there has to be this reflexive critique of, of how we're doing that. Yeah. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, I, I think what you're saying is really interesting about the yoga studies because I, you know, I have a lot of respect for them and I've, you know, featured them on the embodied philosophy in a variety of ways. James just did a talk for our um, virtual retreat. And, and, and it, you know, th one of the things that comes up afterwards <clears throat> with our students is, and what I think is an ongoing question is really, well, that's all very interesting, but how does it relate to my practice? And so, and I think that, it, you know, in the worst case scenario, it's being imbibed a way that actually confuses people and moves them away from their practice because it presents yoga as this historically quite alien thing, you know, especially given, you know, some of the, that when it, especially when the focus is on very alien practices that are not coupled with any sort of coherent philosophical understanding, right? So they don't really understand even why certain things were being done. And so then it makes you, it, it alienates you from a practice you thought was yours by introducing this sort of like historical, historically contingent expression of yoga that was not, um, that isn't something you're practicing. And so there's, so there, and, and so I, I think one of the things the community is having to confront is that this, this newfound need to understand different registers of understanding and like understand that, okay, I can appreciate all of this research from a certain kind of, uh, per, from a perspective of curiosity, but then I also have to understand that there's a limit to which it's going to inform my own practice and, and, and what is really, what are the necessary sort of, you know, elements of knowledge that are conducive to me actually doing the work of contemplative practice right. and, and, you know, the realization of whatever subtle states of knowledge. Um, yeah. and, and I think that isn't being that, that there's a lot of confusion in between those two things. Yeah. So here's the thing is that, that what we do in, so this is mostly religious studies, historian type scholars, right? Uh, what we do within those fields has nothing to do with the one who's consuming the research or the one who's producing the research. Uh, it, it is disconnected. Yeah. And that's, that's fine. That's, that's the name of the game, right? The, uh, so that's, that's one thing. It, it just quickly, uh, I, before I forget, the, I think it's really interesting when you bring up the, 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 the term alienation. 
And I think on one hand, this is, I, I question whether this is like a new form of Orientalism happening because we feel so alienated that those yogis become the other, the classical, uh, uh, probably the medieval or early 20th century yogis become like the other. And so one thing I, that struck me when, when you said that is, uh, and, and the problem is who, who would do this? Because most yoga teachers don't have, maybe would not think about it this way, but how do we inquire into that alienation? Mm-hmm. Like how do we workshop the very feeling of alienation? And how do we understand how that's taking place, why it's taking place, what are the political consequences, what are the consequences on our practice? Like that has to be its own discussion because because it's just happening and people are going out of their teacher trainings or these workshops and going like, oh God, I feel like this is so weird. What am I doing? What were these people doing? And and they don't have answers or like a process to, to work through that. I think that's one thing is that that has to be like a new wave of, you know, uh, 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 to, to, to work through. But going back to the, the, the issue in terms of the teaching is, um, I, I think you're absolutely right because, because people are going into yoga, not to become historians. They're going into yoga as a, personal practice, and especially the people who are spiritually, spiritual, whatever that spiritual means, spiritually inclined, uh, they're looking for personal growth. And so then how do you look at these traditions for growth? And and uh, to give you one example of the kind of thing that I do in, in an academic class, which is different. So I teach a class called, um, it's, it's a philosophy class with upper division philosophy class with a lot of um, graduate MA and PhD philosophy students in it. It's called um, Meditation and Mind. And it's looking at the theory of meditation and Indian philosophy of mind. So yoga, Vedantic, Buddhist theories of mind and consciousness. And what I'm asking them to do is do these uh, meditation labs where they learn meditation. We talk about the theory and we read works on Indian philosophy, focusing on the mind and meditation. And then they, their, their question, the open question is, can we use meditation as a philosophical method? to look at our own phenomenological experience and how does that function, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm trying to bridge these two worlds because because the problem I think you're getting at is that, and this is, this is also, by the way, what makes Vedanta a means of knowledge, is that whatever we're doing has to be looking back into ourselves, right? So academia doesn't do that. Academia is always refracting to an object mm-hmm. other than... So how to bridge this gap? There you are, see uh, so how to bridge this gap and, and make these things like look inside of ourselves. So in that in that in the philosophy course, I'm not taking a position. I'm not trying to push a position like yoga is right or like looks like classical hatha yoga. Like because James Mallison is talking about the not some pradaya or something like. It's not the question like are they right or is Vedanta right? It's it's can we employ techniques uh, and use that to see ourselves in some way? Does, does it open anything up without? And it's a little dicey line because there are issues. Are you engaging in a religious practice or not? That's also a question in the course. You know, we have to discuss that. Uh, but the bottom line, I think, for yoga practitioners, I think it's important to have these histories. I don't want to say that's not. I think it's actually really important. And what these scholars are doing and what they're uncovering, and it's such a new field, it's really amazing. Like there's these whole histories that we just don't have, we don't know, um, that are coming to light. But from that personal growth, spiritual element or, or trajectory, we, ha- we have to engage these traditions in a way that allow us to see something in ourselves. And I think there's, I think what has happened 
is that there's all these amazing practices and knowledge and, and, and inquiries. A definition of Vedanta is just self-inquiry, atma vichara. And that self-inquiry goes away, and then, and then we don't have any means to do it. Or, 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 not, or, or we lose the potential means that the Indian traditions have that we're not finding elsewhere. So, yeah, I think both have to be there. I think the historical academic stuff is important, but also, you know, how do we engage these yoga traditions? And not just hatha yoga. I, I guess I'm a little, uh, to be honest, as, as, a, as a practitioner, not, not as a scholar, but as a practitioner, I'm, I'm rather biased in that I also feel quite alienated by the, the this, certain of the origins of posture practice. So I'm, I'm much more moved by, by, by Vedanta, by um, classical Tantra, non-dual Tantra, by Mahayana, and also early, earlier Buddhism. And so these are the traditions that, that, that tend to speak to me in the way that they engage in, in the rigorous philosophy that they use, as well as their phenomenological self-inquiry meditation practices. Um, I, I love... Uh, I love asceticism in the ascetic practices, and it's also been a part of my own practices as, as doing some serious dabbling in that kind of stuff, especially in my youth. But there are certain elements of the, the medieval yoga traditions which, which I also struggle to sort of step into and make sense of, because we do live in this world which is so, we heroize, we, you know, like rationality is our hero, right? And I see that more in the questioning and the, and the philosophy and things like that. So yeah, I, I can I can empathize with alienation, but you know, we have to engage it in ways that don't just alienate it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel you. I'm I'm definitely resonate with what you're saying because I feel the same way. And um, um, even though my asana practice is, I wouldn't say that it's outside of the orbit of my practice, but it's certainly you know I consider my meditation practice and my studies to be more central and the asana is sort of something that supports all of that. Um, and, you know, there, I suppose there could be an argument that that's really what asana was intended to be, but of course it's become sort of the central pillar. And, and there are, you know, I, I know some individuals very close to me who, who want to resist sort of the pushback against or kind of the delegitimizing of asana as a central contemplative practice for those who choose to, you know, see it that way. Um, but it's complicated, obviously, yeah. because there is, you know, if you're if you're appropriating, for example, the Yoga Sutras in a way that um, for your asana, for your central asana practice, there is a little bit of a misappropriation going on because, of course, that wasn't what was <laughs> that wasn't the fundamental practice of those who were initially, you know, uh, you know, uh, engaging with the Yoga Sutra. So. Um, you know, it's one of those things that's very, it's, you know, complicated yeah. and people obviously have a lot of different opinions on it. Just kind of say one, one thing. On yes, that, please. Is, is that I think you can take it both ways. Like, even if you want to try and squeeze your asana practice into the yoga sutras, there is, a, I'm forgetting the sutra, uh, um, the Sanskrit's not coming to me, but, um, uh, there is in the first chapter, there's a sutra that, you know, you can meditate in whatever, whatever you want. And so... You can say, okay, I'm going to make my asana the the, the alambana, the, the the object or the basis for my meditation. And, but I think it's it's a difficult 
I, I, my question is whether there's sort of a sunk cost fallacy with people who have spent years and years in their asana practice think it's going to by itself take them all the way. Um, I haven't done that in that way, so I can't, I can't make a claim, but, but I, but I, I have serious doubts from a Vedantic perspective. It's, it's how is, it's like what you're saying that asana practice can be used as an incredible tool and you can go so deep and learn so much and do so much discipline, so much phenomenological inquiry, so much, you know, embodied, and also the way it's tied into the modern world, like somatic psychology and all this other stuff. And so you can bring all that in and grow so much, but, um, it's, it's, it's within the yoga tradition. It's always classical yoga tradition. No one considered it a means by itself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's leave it in that provo at that provocative statement. <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, we have a few minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, um, I wanted to get to a question about Mind in Life because I know you're involved um, with Mind in Life Institute. Um, and, you know, I, I was curious about that because they're traditionally a kind of Buddhist um, uh, organization. So um, is are they doing something differently in inviting in uh, those from, you know, perspectives like Vedanta? Is that, is it sort of like another line of research um, or what's happening at Mind and Life that um, has brought you on board? Uh, I, that's where they want to go. So my, I think my, Mind and Life is, uh, the, of course, they're originally inspired by, by the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama's um, interactions with neuroscientists, particularly one named uh, Varela, who is not alive anymore, but was hugely influential in the sort of birth of uh, uh, neuroscientific research into meditation. And so I would say their real emphasis is, th though they hold Buddhism very dearly and tightly, and they still do this conversation with the Dalai Lama and, and, and et cetera, and, but their real emphasis is more on the, the neuroscience, clinical psychology, and also contemplative pedagogical research that's going on. And so they're sort of, I don't even know, if, I, don't, I don't know if I should, would claim that they're Buddhist-centered, but of course they're Buddhist-centered in that everything that has come out into the field of contemplative studies broadly, including the neuroscience and, and the, the the, um, psychology is mostly Buddhist centric, right? mindfulness centered, actually, like probably 90% of it. And I do think uh, mind and life is realizing that they, that there's a much broader world of contemplative studies, Yeah. not just in India, yeah. but indigenous traditions, African traditions, um, you know, even in, in Christianity or Judaism or whatever. Uh, and, and so they're starting to and look for more voices. And I think they're just on the really on the cusp of doing that and, and trying to bring in more. Um, so yeah, I think that was, it was actually something I, I had a talk with some of them about, you know, uh, so I was at a, I was at their summer research Institute last summer up in Garrison, New York. Which is yeah, North I, the city. I was recently up there. Yeah. Yeah. It really beautiful retreat center. And, uh, and so I was talking to a lot of people there about, uh, who are not in the field of philosophy or the religious studies. And they're doing, so neuroscientists and psychologists, and they're doing work on Buddhist-inspired, Buddhist-based uh, meditation practices. 
but they really didn't know much about the Buddhist traditions, many of them at least. And, and not that they didn't want to, it's just they didn't have, you know, it's a difficult field to, to enter into. And Buddhist philosophy has also remained, Indian philosophy in general, the Buddhist philosophy less so because of mind and life, but uh, remains in its own sort of, uh, you know, little niche. Mm-hmm. And so much terminology and technicalities and textual stuff and, and so it hasn't translated as much. And so I was just bringing up, bring, raising these points with several people that uh, within mind and life that, that there's this whole wider world of contemplative practices that we're not tapping into, whether it's non-dual tantra or whether it's Advaita Vedanta and, you know, beautiful in, in forms of um, contemplative pursuits. For example, like visualization practices has been very little studied upon that and or like this karma yoga I was talking about earlier, how does that become a contemplative practice? And mm. uh, what, what do we do with not, we're not, things that don't fit into a secular mindset? You know, what do we do with these sort of practices? And there's also raises uh, issues of cooperation within contemplative studies. And so the way the funding works is that you know, like a, a, someone doing psychology, they need to narrow in on a secular practice or extract yeah. it to be secular because there's this, utilitarian perspective of how are we going to bring this out into the, the, the North American, you know, world. Uh, and so the way the funding works, the way the research works and, and, and some raising some issues around that as well. And so now there, there are people who are, are starting to look into that and so yeah, but anyways, mind and life is super receptive. They're not at all. To, kudos to them is that they, um, I'm talking to them. They, they are not like, no, 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 we, are, we need to, you know, tight. They're like, how do we do this? Right. Even, you know, yeah. So, so, um, yeah. That, yeah. That's interesting. That's, ex- I mean, it's exciting to hear that because, um, you know, I, even, even in embodied philosophy, we, you know, initially would use the term Eastern philosophy a lot. And then, you know, obviously there's lots of problems again, like you had mentioned earlier with the designation Eastern versus Western. And so we've moved away from that and used the term contemplative studies more often, but I encountered, which is always, you know, oh, that makes sense as an umbrella term to encompass all of these different traditions. Um, but I did encounter someone once who who I use the term contemplative studies and they thought specifically Buddhist. They were like, Oh, Buddhist, Buddhist, because they were sort of the first to use this term contemplative studies. Um, and so it's taken on this kind of resonance of, of being associated with Buddhism. So it's good that this, uh, this kind of forging open of that category to include and encompass, um, <clears throat> approaches and perspectives is, 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 you know, is great. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's sort of, that's always the question that I have is, how do you invite a conversation um, of a tradition whose, you know, who one of whose central axiom is the realization of God? You know, whether or not you want to use the term God to to talk about it, but like in the very act of making secular that the practices that are associated with that, you are leaving something out. You know, you are misappropriating that, and so um, it'll be interesting to see how they resolve or respond to that uh, challenge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah. I think that's a tough one. Yeah. But, but you're absolutely right in that. Content, so actually, so I'm on, I'm on the organizing committee for mind and life's next really big uh, research conference, which will be next November and the university of Wisconsin. And so there's a part of our discussion was how are we defining the, 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 um, the call for the, for the conference and what is contemplative studies. And so we left it very, very open. You're like, 
it, it has to be rigorous research. You know, it's academic that this conference is going to be like a purely academic conference, but it can be from various disciplines, you know, within the humanities or within the sciences or within psychology and from various traditions. And so we're really clear on trying to do that. But what's interesting is that everyone in their own field tends to view it from their own field. Yeah. Right. So it's like yeah. neuroscientists working on contemplative studies. Like, they might be like, well, like, what does philosophy have to offer? It might be. And I'm not saying they all, they all are, but like, there's a tendency to that. And then uh, Indian philosophers might be like, well, well isn't the neuroscientist sort of derivative from the stuff that's coming out of the tradition? And, and well, they don't really understand the tradition. So what are they missing? Or, or how do they interpret? You know, so here's just one example is where, where I think they actually have to intersect is just to one, give one example is um, if you're doing a study of uh, advanced meditators out of a tradition, right? So these Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist monks, for example, a lot of the, some of these studies have, have been on them, done on them. Uh, and then they're reporting their experiences to a researcher who doesn't have a really deep intimacy with that tradition. What, miscom what miscommunications take place yeah. in terms of, because they're the, the practitioners is within the framework of their uh, philosophical, cultural, textual context and, and trying to translate it for the researcher, but the researcher has to understand that context to, under, to understand the responses. So, yeah. so I th I'm yeah. hoping that this dialogue takes place more. I'm actually hoping that Indian philosophy becomes, there's a resurgence of that within the field of contemplative studies, which is majorly dominated by the sciences. Uh, that's why I'm saying the, the Buddhists, I sort of have this question of, even though we say contemplative studies, the assumption might be it's Buddhist. In my experience, it's not Buddhist that much in the sense of really understanding the con. I'd say the earlier researchers probably were like people who were early on in mind in life were closely associated with Tibetan Buddhists and stuff like that. But uh, now it's exploded, right? The field is just exploded. So, so I think that a lot of researchers now are not as familiar. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, this is all very exciting. Is there anything else um, before we stop that you want to share about anything that's coming up for you? Are you doing any? Um, well, you're teaching a course <laughs> for embodied yeah. philosophy um, called non-duality, and um, it's uh, I believe seeking or encountering wholeness through the Advaita Vedanta or something like that. And it's starting on February twentieth, and um, this. Uh, I, I, this interview will come out this week. Perhaps we'll get it out tomorrow. So those who are listening have a couple of weeks to jump on board with that. Um, and you can find, of course, information about that at embodiedphilosophy.com. But is there anything else that's coming up, Neil, that you'd like to share? Hmm. With me? Not so much. Just doing my, my mostly my academic work. But I'm really excited about this, this course. Uh, and just for, for people who are interested, I maybe just note that uh, I'm going to come at it from both sides, one as the scholar and one as, as, a, as a traditional teacher. Uh, I do teach an ongoing class where I'm located here in, in, in Canada. And uh, it's a little difficult to compress it all, but I, I want to give that traditional element because to me, as we were talking before, if you're not using these traditions, it's actually exactly apropos to what we were talking about is we have to have the history, we have to have a kind of, it's helpful to have a conceptual understanding, but the danger is when we have a conceptual understanding of something like Vedanta or Mahayana Buddhism or whatever, 
is that then we think we know we can give like the elevator pitch. Yeah. This is what they're saying. Yeah. But we've actually undermined ourselves because you haven't turned it towards yourself. Yeah. So yeah. what I really want to do in, in this, in, 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 in the course with you, uh, is, is, uh, to turn that. And the most important thing I think in yoga in general, in Vedanta in particular, is that we're dealing with a phenomenal logical inquiry. It's an inquiry into our, our experience. It's not an inquiry. It's not, it's not doing philosophy in the way that we in the academy do philosophy. And the whole thing is, is looking at yourself and using the models of the tradition. So people, people are familiar with things like the five koshas, the five sheets, or this and that kind of stuff that comes up in, in, in maybe in the yoga teacher training. That is all about how do you look at yourself. Yeah. through those models they're models yeah. they're not they're not trying to make these hard factual claims that you actually have these five sheets they're just ways of they're, they're maps to look into your experience yeah. and that those maps then lead you to understanding yourself that's the goal so yeah i just want to invite everyone who's interested in that to to come and check it out and hopefully yeah. you understand some data, but you gain some insight into yourself yeah, I think it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. And um, thank you so much, Neil. This has been a fantastic conversation. We went uh, way f longer than I thought we would, but I think we covered some really good material. So thank you for taking your time to speak with me today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was great.